only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. If you're using the Blue Bible in the, in, in the pew in front of you, this would be on page 944 on the right side of that page. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation awakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of God. Let us pray together as we come to his word. O Lord, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. Teach us, Lord, who we are as your image and what this world is as your creation and what we must do in it. May we live out our lives, Lord, the joyful sense of your presence, seeking you in everything and giving you glory in everything. O oh Lord, enrich our lives by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you uh, see in our title, If Creation Will Be Renewed, How Do I Then Live? Trying to draw some conclusions from what we've studied this far uh, in this passage in Romans chapter 8. I thought I'd start just by a small review of what we mean by the renewal of creation and and the resurrection if i had a if i had one of them charts um i would uh, draw it for you but what i when i have a blackboard i i, I draw a picture of of death okay and so the spirit goes to be with christ the body in the grave and then these two lines okay to the end of history when Jesus comes again, bringing those who have died, their spirits, and raising that body that was in the grave at that point to reunite it to the soul. 
And as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, they, that reuniting precedes the transformation of those who are still on the earth. So those who are still on the earth when Christ comes, their bodies are immediately transformed to be like Christ's body. Paul says that specifically in Philippians 3. We, and I alluded to that, we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be conformed to the body of His glory. Those who have died will have their bodies, no matter if they've been in the grave, no matter if they were eaten or burned or whatever, it doesn't matter. The God who made our bodies to start with will reconstitute that body and it will be raised to be conformed to the glory of Christ's body. And that word meat is a word, a technical word used to indicate when a crowd would come out to meet a king and usher him back into the city. And so the picture is of meeting him in the air and then the renewal of the heavens and the earth and our accompanying Christ to the the new world that he has remade. And so that's the fundamental picture of the end time what we call eschatology, the study of the end time, the coming of Christ and the renewing of all things and the resurrection of the body. And the point we've tried to make over and over is that our going to be with Jesus, as wonderful as that is, and the one statement of that is found in uh, Hebrews 12 where he says, these are the spirits of men made perfect. Men and women are understood, of course, but the spirits of human beings made perfect. So we'll have the joy of being made perfect. We'll have the joy of being sinless. We'll have the joy of being in the presence of Christ. And still, there will be that cry, how long? Waiting for that day when our spirits will be reunited to our bodies. That is the hope that Scripture points to over and over and over again, is that final resurrection, the final coming of Christ, when our bodies and all things will be transformed. Now, one, one implication of this is simply the goodness of God's creation. That when He made the world and pronounced it good, and I don't know how He said that, but, you know, if it was one of us and we were talking about something that we'd made, you know, we'd, there'd be a lot of personality in it. You make something and you look at it and say... <laughs> That, 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 that's good. That is, that, is, that is good. You make something else and you look at it and say, good, that, that's good. And you make something else and you look at it and say, so good. You know, I don't know. I don't know what God's emotions were. I, I think they were infinitely glorious, you know, when he pronounced the creation good. It, it was a pronouncement uh, seven times to state how good it is. And, and we better come alongside and agree with him about that creation. But the implication is that he's not going to annihilate his creation. Creation is important to God. And our bodies are important to God. God has taken on a body forever. That's our teaching about the Incarnation. That he didn't cease to be God, but he took to himself a real human body, a real human soul, a full humanity joined to his divinity. And he continues like that forever. So there's a permanent identification with our bodies. 
in the Godhead. This is unthinkable to Greek, uh, the Greeks that God would participate in the earth in that way. Just unthinkable because in their minds, uh, we're just hoping to get out of our bodies and hoping to get away from this world. Uh, one writer says a lot of people have in their minds that we're kind of apprentice angels. You know, <laughs> one of these days we'll get out of these bodies and get, really get to be angels one day. But we're human beings. And it, even of the angels, it is not said specifically that they're made in the image of God. But we are said to be made in the image of God. And God completely restores that image, soul and body, perfectly like Him in righteousness, and our bodies taking on the glory of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, it helps us understand, this, this statement helps us to understand the goodness of creation and that we should participate fully in the creation. And this is not alien to what we'll be doing forever. Okay? Now, we don't participate in sin. And, and of course, more and more we want to be free of sin. But that does not mean that more and more we want to be uh, alienated from His creation. Uh, because we are going to be in the new creation the new earth, the heavens, and the new earth forever and ever. So this is a statement about the goodness of creation both now and forever and how God is committed to His creation now and forever. He is going to redeem it fully in Christ and renew it fully in Christ. So I'd like to talk about three things. Uh, One, a view of the world. Secondly, a view of work. And then finally, a view of what is to come. A view of the world, a view of work, a view of what is to come. And all of this is, uh, of course, abbreviated. Uh, I'm, I need to get on through Romans. Uh, this is, it's tempting to talk about this for weeks and weeks, but we've got to keep going in Romans. <clears throat> I know I stayed too long in Romans 6, and I apologize for that. You're, you're all saying, I hope it's not Romans 6 again. <clears throat> First, a view of the world. Uh, I recommend to you a book by T.M. Moore called Consider the Lilies, A Plea for Creational Theology. And in this book, he talks about the uh, inescapable presence of God, using especially Psalm 19 as uh, as a basis. Um, And this is a, a psalm that's been precious to me for years. But you recall in the first part of Psalm 19, it speaks of God's revealing himself in the creation. The very first words of Psalm 19 read like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard, but their voice goes out throughout, through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so, uh, more in talking about this passage, he, he begins to say, first of all, there is indeed a revelation of God in the creation. And this is a happy thing for us to begin to understand. And I want to extend it not only to creation, but three areas that uh, he points out later. And I think these are excellent ways to think about all the ways that we can know God in his creation. It's uh, the creation culture, and then what he calls acts of conscience, okay? Acts of conscience. In other words, 
in excellent literature, uh, in other philosophy and, and the like, though the Word of God, of course, is our standard of assessing, still people are in the image of God. They express things marvelously and beautifully and poignantly so many times. In fact, they even come to grips with some of the same issues we struggle with. And it's, it's shocking sometimes, surprising, how deeply they delve into these issues and struggle with the same issues of, of right and wrong and struggle with guilt and all of this. And these are, in ways, you see, revelations of the presence of God in this world, the providence of God in this world, and the, and the indication that man himself is in the image of God and he can't help but be the image of God. Now, it's a broken image. But he is nonetheless, in James and in, in Psalm 8, regarded as in the image of God, even as a sinner. And so he reflects this God in so many ways. And so uh, it's, it's in creation, but God is not only the God of creation, he's the God of man who's made man a culture maker. And so in all of these ways, we come up against the presence of God throughout his creation, throughout his world. But in Psalm 19, there's this revelation of God bearing great testimony to him. And you'll notice that it's constant, right? It never stops. Everywhere you turn, it's profuse. Uh, he says God veritably floods the creation with manifestations of his glory. And he does so in all of its parts, day and night, in every culture, among all peoples. God is always revealing himself through the things he has made. The whole world flames out and oozes and fathers forth his glory and grandeur at all times. Is that the way you see creation? Is that the way you see Fort Worth. <laughs> Is that the way you see your neighborhood? Is that the way you see your living room, your kitchen, your breakfast, your backyard? The presence of God pervading all things. You see, nothing can exist apart from Him. No creation is done apart from Him. Now, the sin of whatever might be created, uh, in terms of media, for instance, is not a part of Him. But the act of creativity, the act of making things, is part of the glory of God and the providence of God. But then also Psalm 19 makes it... Uh, it's clear. It declares the glory of God. It is unmistakable. It is the glory of God. It is God declaring himself to the world. It is God himself, his presence, making himself known and beckoning us to reflect upon him. And in my, you know, my better moments are still terrible, but in my better moments... A day lived in the presence of God is in some ways almost unbearable for its beauty and glory because you, you begin to see in everything that in you know, a piece of wood, a, a sheet of paper, a microphone, a, an airplane, a, a computer, a, a telephone, a leaf, you see in everything the majesty of God fills it and bursts forth. But we're pretty weak generally in recognizing this. 
And there are many, many days where it, we don't even feel a little bit of awe. I mean, even a little bit of awe. It's, for all practical purposes, it's as though God made none of this, has nothing to do with it, is not present in everything. It's as though we have completely shut him out. And then he also points out that it's ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere. That means it's inescapable. His glory is unavoidable. You can't open your eyes that you're not presented in some way with the glory and majesty of God. As it says, it goes out to all the earth. It's heard to the end of the world. No one can hide from its light or avoid the proclamation it makes of the reality and glory of God. His revelation is inescapable. And that means our response to that revelation is inescapable. You can't have no response if it's really there, right? If he's really, if somebody came up to me and just is in my face and says, Darwin, Darwin, listen to me. And I just turned away and walked away from him. You know, he'd say, man, he must hate him. He must really not want to talk to him. Or he's blind and deaf, you know, or he's in another world. He's thinking about something. Something's wrong that he's not reacting to this. And so that brings us, of course, to Romans chapter 1, when it too talks about how God has revealed himself in all the things that are made. Paul says the things in creation, the the invisible things of God are clearly seen. They are understood through what is made. His eternal power in Godhead so that we are without excuse. But what did we do? He says his wrath is against those who suppress that truth. That we did not honor him as God and we weren't thankful. So ungrateful people deny God's revelation of himself. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. Ungrateful people deny God's revelation. And we even think we're wise in ignoring this self-revelation of God. Though there is beauty reaching out to us, challenging us, calling to us, enter into this, meditate on the one who does this, know him and, and be present with him, fellowship with him, we tend to ignore it. That's the indictment of Romans 1. William uh, Cooper is... Bell Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, and he's written many of our great hymns. Uh, But in his extended poetry called The Task, man views it, that is creation, and admires, but rests content with what he views. The landscape has his praise, but not its author. Unconcerned who formed the paradise he sees, he finds it such And such, well-pleased to find it, asks no more. Asks no more. Well, as Paul goes on to say, or does say in that place, ungrateful people fall under the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Isn't it amazing? As Paul says, let me tell you what's happened with mankind. Let me tell you about mankind's sinfulness. 
God revealed himself in creation and man wouldn't acknowledge it. Wouldn't thank him. Wouldn't enjoy him. Wouldn't enter into the beauty and glory of this God. But turned the creation into an idol. Worshipped anything but God. Enjoyed everything but God. Instead of God. Either deified the creation or abused the creation in some way. But in no way did we take the creation, honor the God who gave it to us, and then use the creation for His glory under His will. And so creation, as Hopkins in his uh, poem says, nature is never spent in declaring God's glory. I love that phrase. Never quits. It it will be no less in the next minute than the last minute or the next minute or the next minute. Every minute. Creation is never spent. It's because it's the presence of God, God manifesting himself in his creation. Listen to what Calvin says about this. Men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. And then he goes on to talk about uh, culture. He says, men who've uh, never even tasted the liberal arts uh, penetrate with their aid far more deeply into the secrets, or or even tasted the liberal arts, he says. Either you've quaffed them down, that's his word, you either really drank down the liberal arts, or you've even tasted them. This is Calvin. They... uh, penetrate far more deeply into the secrets of the divine wisdom. So that even in the arts, in, in, in the culture, uh, Calvin and the reformers saw that in these things, we are, we are coming up against God himself, his revealed wisdom as he has given it to human beings. And we're brushing up against his glory in these ways. Abraham Kuyper as well said... We do not think for a moment of limiting ourselves to theology and contemplation, leaving other sciences as of a lower character in the hands of unbelievers. But on the contrary, looking upon it as our task to know God in all his works, we're conscious of having been called to fathom with all the energy of our intellect things terrestrial as well as things celestial to open to view both the order of creation and the common grace of the God he adores. We adore in nature and its wondrous character, in the production of human industry, in the life of mankind, in sociology, and in the history of the human race. And and Burkauer talks so much about how God has redeemed us so that now... We can enjoy Him in His creation. It's one of the fruits of redemption. And we didn't recognize Him before, but now the glory of God is open to us in Jesus Christ and the glory of all creation is open to us. Because now it's a means of seeing God's greatness and beauty in the creation. And so this is one of our, the view of the world is that it is a constant arena to know God. And it is, of course, centrally governed by, conditioned by always His Word. But then His Word itself is declaring to us that creation is revealing God. It is. It is revealing God. And we have the great privilege 
of thinking upon Him as He is revealed in Scripture. As it says in Psalm uh, 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord studied or pursued by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And even the, the providences of this world are always means of something. In some way, God is revealing Himself because they are called the works of the Lord. In Psalm 46, verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. So brothers and sisters, in in every event, and as many have said, it's not always that we, I mean, the ways of God are past finding out. It's not as though we're going to get this clear voice of God in providences. But we must always realize God is in the middle of everything that's happening. And so many things are fruitful of reflection. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would say, hey, take the lilies. You ever thought about the lilies? You ever thought about how beautiful they are? It's just Jesus looking at something that's sitting right there. He says, let me just say something. If God takes care of a flower, you think he's going to take care of you? No. Contemplation of creation and, and drawing a, a wonderful conclusion for us. So there's this revelation from of God in creation. And we're accountable to that God in creation. And we must be faithful to Him in His revelation in in creation. As Scott Hoosey has written, as creatures made in God's likeness, this is at once our privilege and our task. There is joy out there in the creation of of our God as image bearers. It is our holy vocation to notice it, love it, revel in it, and preserve it. That's sweet. Now, what a task for the week. <laughs> what a task. Okay, here's your, here's your vocation this week. Notice it, love it, revel in it, preserve it. That's your duty before God with His creation. What a sweet command that we seek Him in all things. A view of work kind of follows from this, doesn't it? A view of work in which we recognize who we are in God's creation. Herman Bavink is a was a, a Dutch theologian writing around the time of 1900. He says Genesis 1:26, in which we are told man's made in God's image and he's to uh, subdue the earth and rule the earth tells us that God had a purpose in creating man in His image, namely, and this is, this is the point of image, that man should have dominion over all living creatures and that he should multiply and spread out over the world subduing it. If we comprehend the force of this subduing under the term culture, now generally used for it, we can say that culture in the broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after His image. That's an interesting statement. Kind of connects dots for me. Why did God make man on earth to subdue the earth, to create culture? That's what that means. 
to explore the earth, to bring forth the riches of the earth. And yet, as he says to Adam, that he uh, says about he's to guard or protect and to work the earth. So we're to bring forth the fruits and the riches of the earth all the way so that a bunch of stuff in the ground now flies and gets you four hours across America. There's an example, okay? Or that I can chat with somebody in India, for instance. These are just well-known examples, but uh, how man is to has given this task to subdue this earth and, and rule it for the glory of God. And so we were made uh, culture makers. That's the very purpose for which we were made. And so it's important for us to not to think that some of us have holy jobs and some of us don't have holy jobs, but that all of us have a holy task. And it's the one that was given in the beginning that in some form or fashion you are seeking to bring the glory of God and the gifts of God to bear in some aspect of, of labor in this world, some aspect of serving your society, some aspect of using the gifts that God's given you and the reflection that you are of the image of God who thinks and analyzes and plans and cleans and does all of these things in his creation. And now we image him in the many ways that we work. We are made, we are culture makers, and we can expect that we will be culture makers in the new heavens and the new earth. Not a lot is said. There are some uh, things that seem to indicate that in Isaiah and Revelation. But just from the nature of man, this is what we would come to expect. It's uh, interesting, the the word for uh, culture, originally it was from a Latin verb, uh, to plow or till the ground, okay? Um, and that's why it was eventually used with agriculture. Agros is a field, you Latin scholars, and uh, culture to care for the ground. To uh, and, and then culture was gradually used in other ways so that uh, it was even used as a metaphor for the educational process, as Thomas Hobbes called the education of children the culture of their mind. So you're taking the agricultural metaphor and using it for the development of the mind, and eventually it stood for the whole product of a human society, everything that we would produce as a society. In some cases, the best of what, as one has said, the best of what has been known and done and said in the world uh, but in, in other cases, just the whole of what a, a society would, would do and produce. Um, but interestingly, the word paradise is used in the Greek to describe the Garden of Eden. Paradise, which meant a garden or a park, an enclosed garden and park. And that also is used in Revelation 2-7 of the new heavens and the new earth. And also, we're told that Jerusalem is a city. So there's this picture of a paradise city, a city garden that will be produced in the new heavens and the new earth. And for some, the picture is of the whole world uh, spread out with who knows what kind of technology, who knows what kind of uh, art and music and architecture, but woven in beautifully with the creation to enhance the creation at every point to make it all a breathtaking place. 
Imagine traveling the world in that case and having the ability and the time to see these wonders that are produced over the eons of the new heavens and the new earth. So when we participate in work and culture, don't think that this is just something that is meaningless, that has nothing to do with the true nature of mankind. Whatever your work, whatever thing you're involved in, in your home or at work, is full of this rich, rich meaning. Paul Marshall, in his book, Heaven is Not My Home, uh, has a great quote from... uh, Great quote from Martin Luther, and you know Martin Luther is always provocative. Um, <clears throat> he would challenge anybody that he could drink, drink, he could beat anybody drinking his beer down to the last line of the Apostles' Creed on his mug. Um, <clears throat> that was Martin Luther. <clears throat> okay, but on his treatise on the estate of marriage, and this is a bit long, but I think you'll really enjoy this and benefit from it. He says, when natural reason takes a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, alas. And now he's speaking as a man here, not as a woman. It sounds like a woman, but he's speaking of himself as a man. Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves. What, should I make a prisoner of myself? <laughs> Natural reason. Some of you like your eyebrows up. You know, no. <laughs> he says, but the new creature in Christ has a new life. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes, looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit, and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval, as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, the Christian faith, O God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man, and as from my body begotten this child, I also know for a certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure." I confess to thee that I am not worthy to rock the little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature in thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be ever more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat, nor neither drudgery nor labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight." Now you tell me when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other mean task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool. That was in the 1500s. As an effeminate fool, though that father is acting in the spirit just described and in Christian faith. My dear fellow, you tell me which of the two is most keenly ridiculing the other. God with all his angels and creatures is smiling. Not because a man is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. And you're probably familiar with Tyndall's great statement. There is no work better than another to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoemaker or an apostle. All is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. Everything is divine ministry. So we look upon our work as that which is pleasing to God, which honors God. 
Also, one more uh, quick quote. He says, we, we get sick. We, we, we do not work only to evangelize. We do it in everything. He, he, he says, the worker who does not do his or her job diligently, cheerful, as well as walking uh, and well, is a walking testimony worth a thousand words. He talks about uh, not being one who just uses every opportunity to speak about Jesus and uh, becomes a pain and a bit of a joke to people, but doing his work faithfully. He says, we get sick, we drive on roads, we read newspapers, we eat hamburgers. Those who provide for us are God's servants, whether they know it or not. Let's take this awareness of service and this deeper appreciation of work into our congregations and our lives and to our hearts. Um, and so in everything, uh, we are following God. In everything, we are manifesting God. Um, even in our... Um, even in our recreation, I love this quote uh, from a lady who was um, 86 years old. Article in the Communist, Economist was headlined, Britain's oldest bungee jumper. It told of it. No, she's 78-year-old Betty Wilson, a great-grandmother who bungee jumped 160 feet from a crane. When asked whether it was difficult to bungee jump at her age, she replied, I think it's probably easier for me than for other people. Since I'm blind, I can't see how far I fall. <laughs> but he has a whole chapter on just the joy of recreation and, 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 and the, the benefit of our you know, relaxing in one another's presence and simply relaxing and enjoying the creation and the culture that God has given us and realize that that's a holy thing that we do. And we know, yes, people can use an excuse. They can uh, say, well, I'm just not going to work hard. I'm just going to sit around and, you know. But this is all in line with this uh, commitment to use your gifts to the fullest in this world, to, but in it all to manifest uh, the glory of God in it, and to recognize Him in it. And finally, just briefly, the, a view of what is to come. Notice how Paul, in this passage, speaks about hope. And it's interesting when he says, in this hope we were saved, he, he's saying, we have been saved, but from the start it was accompanied by hope. From the start it was conditioned by hope. There's never been a time that we haven't been saved that immediately hope was pointing us forward, which indicates from the beginning that we are aware it's not all here yet. The completion is not here. The final uh, installation is not here. The, the renewal of all things, the renewal of the body, the being made perfectly free from sin, to be made perfect in relationship to one another. We feel the ache and pain of our sinfulness and this world's sinfulness. And so from the beginning of, of being saved, we have a hope that we never had before. Have an expectation that we never had before. And it, it really... It makes up a huge dynamic of our lives. It sweetens us. And it's because it's not seen, as he points, as he says. Hope that is seen, that is the thing you're hoping for, which he's talking about that salvation, that redemption of the body, that being revealed as the children of God. If you see it, you have no more hope for it. If a boat, you're waiting for a boat to come and you see it, you're not hoping and waiting for that boat. But we are waiting for that, which we do not see. And he says we wait for it with patience. And the word is endurance. 
It's a strong steadiness. And the implication from the other statements about eagerly waiting, it's a joyful steadiness, an expectant steadiness and endurance because we are headed to that end that He is bringing about in the new heavens and the new earth and the renewal of our relationships and the renewal of our bodies. So everything is in hope. And in this final world, it will be known the Prince of Peace will make all things whole. He will bring all things together. Everything will be put back together again. And you and I have the opportunity, even now, as uh, Whitmer talks about it, to spread a slice of shalom in your world. (laughs) To manifest a slice of shalom as a testimony, even to this dark world, this is the kingdom that is coming. It's a kingdom that manifests itself in the way we're gracious in every single uh, instance by God's grace. And in our encounters with other people, how we do mercy, how we stand for justice, in every way with every relationship that we are proclaiming to people the shalom of the kingdom of God and manifesting it to them in our lives. I love what uh, Michael Whitmer says about this. And he's using uh, everyday experiences, everyday things. Um, Well, I think my time's up. I'm going to hold off on that. But he just goes through every aspect of your life, even the mundane things, and how in these things we can manifest uh, the greatness of God. Here it is. I'm going to go ahead and read it and close with this. (laughs) He says, um, in talking about the Prince of, of Peace, and of course, you know how he quotes joy to the world, that he'll uh, cause his. Uh, the blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. And then he says this, At the very least, we signal the arrival of the kingdom when we cultivate the virtues we learned in kindergarten. (laughs) Mind your manners, wait your turn, be kind, play fair, say please and thank you, and share toys. In our grown-up world, we repair the fabric of shalom when we inquire about our friend's day and then intently listen to her response. Leave words of encouragement with those who least expect it. Remember and use the names of people we've just met. And I'm hugely convicted by this paragraph. Let another finish the story that we're dying to tell. Speak the truth even when it embarrasses us. Prepare a home-cooked meal for a harried family. Give up our seat to an elderly gentleman or young child. Turn off our cell phones. When we should hold the door for the person trailing behind us, allow another car to merge into our lane, speak courteously to the staff, return the video, rewound, leave the toilet seat down and politely ask the telemarketer to kindly never call us again. (laughs) Well, he goes on to talk about the shalom of the city, the shalom in this world and justice in this world. What a glorious thing that you have been called out of darkness into light. And you've been called to the new heavens and the new earth. And you have an opportunity to give people, by your life, a taste of the kingdom. A taste of the kingdom of God from you people right here. That's your glorious privilege. And He has empowered you to do that. The Spirit indwells you. And Jesus Himself has said, you 
are the light of the world. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us so that in our every engagement with your creation or our culture, we will recognize the providence and presence of God. God the Creator, God who has made man, God who has made man who makes culture. And Lord, we would not abuse this culture. We would not idolize this culture. We would not use culture or creation to focus attention on it to the exclusion of our God. But, oh Lord, in your presence, we would deal with these things and they would become further a glory to your name in our hearts and our lives, cause further praise to you and even an encounter with you as you are reflected in these things. Oh, Lord God, may our hearts day after day in the days and weeks and months to come really literally be overwhelmed at times, overwhelmed with the joy of this God who fills all the earth with His glory, who is speaking to us, who is revealing Himself to us clearly, constantly, everywhere. It is inescapable, oh Lord. May we acknowledge You. And may we enjoy all the work that you've given us to do, whether it's earning a paycheck or whether it's just around the house, all the other things that you give us to do in relaxation and recreation. Lord, teach us how to use these things, how to balance these things, but in all of them to recognize I am image of God. I'm reflecting God in this work today. It has glorious meaning And it pleases Him as I'm taking my place to fulfill His calling in my life. Oh, bless us, Lord. Bless us that we will be a glory to Your name in every aspect of our lives. We look, Lord, to that final day when Jesus will come. Thank You that You have given us such a hope in Him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away